you know, as everybody knows by now, um, these chats kind of build up and we'll have guests come at, you know, whenever time they're available. So uh, people will join us and they'll offer their analysis and takes. And uh, as best we can, we'll try to break down uh, what's going on in the trial as best as we know. But as MB just pointed out, I mean, (laughs) it's a real problem to try to do this over Twitter. And uh, I thought the first day when everybody was live tweeting, the trial seemed really, really good. But then we found Leslie, um, who put out just a a huge and awesome tweet thread, uh, who actually attended the trial. And after reading that, I felt like the first day maybe wasn't that good. Uh, She described it as really disorganized, uh, which was pretty disheartening to, to see. But then I think it was the last two days or certainly yesterday, I really had the sense of, oh, this is not going well. And that kind of coincided with these long gaps in the live tweeting. And then, you know, I think everybody kind of had that feeling yesterday where, okay, there's not much happening. That, that must mean the trial's not going well. But then when we got the transcripts of yesterday, uh, in my mind, the Durham team did really, really well. Um, and then today... Uh, so obviously I have the benefit of just seeing most of the transcript, uh, through this YouTube train, uh, Durham team did really, really well today. Uh, they definitely prepared for Baker's testimony. They prepped him really, really well. And, uh, yeah, they crushed it today. I mean, Baker coming out and saying he's 100% confident that Sussman lied verbally to him in that meeting, which is the basis of the charge that he faces that's huge. I mean, that's okay. So now the lie is really not in question. I mean, they're going to, they're going to bring in Bill Priestap and Trisha Anderson who took notes contemporaneously on that day uh, after talking to Baker where they know in addition that uh, Sussman said he was not there representing the client yesterday. They introduced the text message, which was actually the day before where it's clear as day. Sussman said he was not representing the client. So that, that's really not in question. We didn't think it would be even before the trial. Uh, Sussman definitely lied. And what also came in today, I thought Baker was, was a really good witness for Durham. Uh, there, there was a, several statements that went to the heart of materiality. Uh, you know, Baker said at one point, you know, if he had known that this was Clinton or Joffe or the DNC was behind this, he would not have taken that meeting with, with Sussman at all. And he would not have taken all these steps that he took. So that that's huge. That goes right to the heart of materiality. Um, MB, I don't know if you have any thoughts. I'm going to add Ship as speaker to get his thoughts as well. But yeah, MB, I, go ahead. I agree 100. percent I was. I think we all were really worried about Baker because he's been, you know, anything from a bad actor in this to at best just kind of like haphazard. And uh, the fact that he came out and just really laid it down and said things very authoritatively and uh, confidently that we thought he might be mealy-mouthed about is is huge for the case. Uh, and I think it was I think it was Margot Cleveland that said, and if it wasn't, uh, forgive me, whoever I'm misquoting, but uh, said he's good if he could look like a better witness because he's friends with Sussman because he's got no beef with him that. Uh, he sounds a lot more believable because he doesn't have a, a, an axe to grind or any political thing, anything like that, that makes what he's saying all the more believable. 
Yeah. Hey, hey, Ship, I see you just accepted to, to be speaker. I don't know if you want to jump in with any thoughts that you had from today. What happened today? <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, nah, you know, it's, it's tough to follow when all you really are looking at is Twitter feeds. Um, I mean, I saw, yep. you know, you're captive to the emotions of the writer, unfortunately. And so a little bit, you know, of a grain of salt with some of this, but, you know, the... There did, you know, I found like five or six different reporters who are following it, um, and nobody though matches what you know Leslie McAdoo Gordon did uh, back on uh, her first day, I think Wednesday when she was there all day, but she couldn't get back, or maybe Tuesday. Um, yeah, I, you know, I, I have kind of mixed emotions about the approach that 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 uh, Sussman has taken overall. I didn't like the way they started, and it's like. If it's my case, I just start with Crossfire Hurricane. What was the FBI doing when this when these materials showed up on their doorstep, courtesy assessment? Ah, they were investigating Trump and Russia. That would have been the foundation for me for why why they were material. It had an FBI agent in there explaining what had started in June or July, leading up to what Sussman did in September. Why they started with technical agents and DNS lookup shit, I have no idea. Just, you know, it's like... Uh, Chip, I think you cut out there. Baker today. Um, yeah, I mean, if you just go based on the, the tweets that were written about Baker's testimony... Um, it, it it pretty did, you know, it did pretty well bullseye the materiality issue. I would have acted differently. Well, two things he did. He said, absolutely, he told me he was not there for a client. Uh, he said just categorically, even though he'd had various versions of that in different circumstances, he explained a couple of them away, saying he didn't anticipate the question when he was asked by Congress. And... Um, uh, that's why he, he was uncertain of his answer then and didn't recall. And that, you know, later on, he was able to refresh his recollection by reviewing, you know, documents and, and whatnot. So, uh, he, he was, he, he was dead certain. And I think probably that text from the night before, you know, kind of stands out because what, why, why do you make that representation? Why does Sussman go out of his way? Why does Sussman go out of his way to make that declarative representation in a text and then not follow it up and say the same thing the next day. So, so, so Baker, you know, clearly said he followed it up and said the same thing the next day, reinforcing in my mind, Baker, that he's there just to, you know, assist the FBI and report information that he's come across, not representing any client. And then as others said, he came back later on to clearly say, had he had he said that in the text or he had he said that at the meeting, my actions would have been different. My reaction to the information would have been different. I would have treated it differently. I would have handled it differently. So. So, yeah, on those two grounds, you know, what they got out of Baker was good. MB, did you have anything else? Um. Maybe Ship can talk a little bit about the uh, the motion for the mistrial because that I think a lot of people are confused because uh, something came up in the court listener that scared everybody. 
Yeah, the, um, the what happened as I as I understand just from the reporting is that you know at various points yesterday, Mark Elias, being a bonehead and not a trial lawyer, um, in response to a defense question initially about you know did Mr. Sussman blah 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 was Mr. Sussman blah blah blah, you know Elias's response was well you'd have to ask him. Well, that calls in that, that implicates or makes a suggestion as to the defendant should testify when a defendant in a criminal case has a fifth amendment right not to testify, and 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 that that subject is not supposed to be commented on by anybody. Um, and Elias should know better than that, uh, although I'm I'm not confident that he does because I actually don't really think that much of him as a lawyer. Um, so so he said it first in response to a defense question. And then, you know, and somehow there was an argument made that he repeated a similar kind of, well, you'd have to ask him or he could tell you something like that uh, in response to a, a, a question on redirect. And so uh, the, uh, at the end of the day, the defense lawyers made the point that, you know, they, they might be seeking a mistrial because of the improper reference to a defendant, you know, having an obligation to assist the jury by testifying. And, and I guess overnight they filed a five-page memorandum asking for a mistrial, which Cooper denied this morning, although he struck Elias's non-responsive comments, uh, not, not responsive to the question from the record. Uh, and, and, you know, I, I, I initially, my first comment was, well, why would you ask for a mistrial if you like the jury or if you like the way the case is going so far? Generally, defendants start looking for mistrials when they're unhappy with the jury or the way the case is going. And then somebody else jumped in and said, well, sometimes you have to ask for a mistrial in order to preserve your record for appeal. <clears throat> if you don't ask for a mistrial right there, you might have waived the issue for appeal. You know, I'd have to you know, do some legal research to see if that was uh, a, 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 an accurate assessment or not. I can't say off the top of my head whether asking for mistrial was a necessity in order to preserve the issue for appeal. Hey, Cody, what's up, man? Hey, what's up? Uh, came in late, so uh, can you recap, like, the first couple minutes for us? Yeah, I, uh, I, I went ahead and plugged Rob Govea, um, who does just outstanding legal analysis. He has a YouTube channel. Uh, he's going to be analyzing everything um, every day of the trial. Uh, so he had like two and a half hours of video where he broke down yesterday's transcript and today's transcript um, really line by line, important section by important section. Uh, and he was still going when we started this chat. So um, he's going to be great uh, for everybody. That um, and then we kind of talked about uh, Baker today. I mean, so I thought Baker was really, really strong uh, for Durham. And I think I also talked a little bit about, you know, what Ship just alluded to in that it's really hard to get a sense of the trial and how it's going from these live tweets. Like day one, everybody thought it was like really, really strong based on the tweets. And then Leslie McAdoo Gordon um, wrote out this really long tweet thread uh, with brilliant analysis. And she, she picked up some things that everybody else didn't. And it, it seemed a lot more um, uh, disorganized from Durham on day one, um, which was pretty disheartening. But then on day two, like yesterday, I think it was, uh, people weren't live tweeting as much. 
And maybe it was just because of that. Um, but whatever the case, like it felt like it was a really bad day for Durham. But then when you got the actual transcript, it, I thought Durham had a much stronger case yesterday. And then uh, being able to go through the, the transcript today, I thought Durham was doing really well. And obviously Baker was a strong witness. I mean, coming out and saying he's 100% confident that Sussman reiterated that he was there not on behalf of any client. I mean, that's, that's huge. Um, because there's all the there's all these stories about how Baker was flip flopping or he wasn't really sure, so he came out today and he said he's 100% confident. Sussman told him that, uh, no question about it. And then he also got into materiality a bit, and he he said, you know, explicitly, you know, if I had known the truth, if he had told me he was there on behalf of Clinton or the DNC or Joffe, I would have treated it differently. I would not have taken the meeting. I think he said at one point. And he also would have briefed the others differently, too. And maybe they would have uh, asked more questions. So I thought that was huge. I mean, I didn't really expect to get that out of Baker. Um, but now we're going to get into Trish Anderson. We're going to get into Bill Priestap. And th- those notes have already been discussed a little bit. Um, but they're going to they're gonna testify. And their notes, uh, taken contemporaneously, are ad- adding another layer to this. So the lie is really not in question at all. Um, it's all going to be about materiality. And it, I thought it was huge today to have him on the stand saying, I would have taken different, different decisions. I would have taken different steps as the general counsel of the FBI, as the assistant director at the FBI. Um, how, can, how can you come back uh, on the defense side and say, well, no, it wasn't material. Like, don't listen to the, what this guy is saying. He's like a senior executive of the FBI and his decisions would have changed. But don't listen to that. Uh, the statements weren't were not material. Like that's going to be really challenging for the defense. I think. Did you have anything else, Cody or, or Ship? I don't know if you have any have any other thoughts from today. Yeah, uh, uh, no. Other than, could you post the link to? Oh, this Robert Govia Esquire has the uh, transcript. Yes. Yep. Yeah. Okay. I see that. Okay. I see that now. Because um, so, yeah. This, <laughs> Not that I really want to take on reading a day's worth of transcripts. I've got enough other stuff to do, but you know, I'll you know, be interesting just to glance through them to see what jumps out at me. I've read a few transcripts in my day, um, so uh, yeah, I, I just, I just, you know, the point that Leslie made in her initial tweet string—I think it was on Tuesday, yeah—because they picked the jury on Monday and they started testimony on Tuesday. And, and, and it was a very good observation that I think is underappreciated is that, you know, this is not a case where Durham has many, if more than a small handful of friendly witnesses. The entire case is built on hostile or, you know, what you might consider quasi hostile witness people that, you know, have some sympathy or loyalty or, you know, kinship with Michael Sussman. Uh, because of the connections at, at DOJ, um, and and so he's going to have, and I think some you know other than the early two FBI witnesses, he's going to have some witness control issues. You know when you're trying to build a case by getting, you know, helpful information from somebody like Mark Elias or Laura Sago. You know, for all the discussion about Laura Sago leading into yesterday, I didn't see where her testimony did much of anything. Um, now, you know, 
so so that tends to make for a very uneven presentation of evidence and in in my mind it even calls out even more for a much better start a, a solid start that gets you on solid ground going forward where you don't have to worry about that uh they they had to jump so quickly to quasi hostile witnesses um now another you know another way to look at that is you get those quasi hostile witnesses out of the way in day two and then you know when you're wrapping up your case in day four day five which i can't believe it's going to take them too much more than that you know those quasi hostile witnesses are far enough in the rearview mirror that the jury doesn't really remember them that well one section that i found really important um really unrelated to the specific trial uh, i just tweeted it out but it's this this section where Sussman actually brought the names of three cybersecurity researchers who supported this allegation or, or something to that effect. It, it, the, the exact wording, we don't really have um, exactly what Sussman was alleging or alluding to, but basically he brought three names, Matt Blaze, Stephen Belvin, and Susan Landau. And two of those would later be quoted in articles about the Alpha Bank server allegations. But Sussman brought those names to Baker in September 2020, or excuse me, 2016. Um, so that, that really hints to me that those three people had prior knowledge of that. Or uh, they, they would at least obviously be familiar with the allegations, but also that Sussman would be bringing them to the FBI. Because if you give the, the FBI three names, the first thing the FBI might do, you have to anticipate, would be to reach out to one of those three people. So you wouldn't want them to be blindsided. Um, and to have that, that, it's not confirmation, but that strong indication that um, this might be a little bit broader than at least I personally was thinking. I thought, I thought that's pretty interesting. Um, Ship, I don't know if you want to talk about, I think one of the questions that I see most a lot, most in my DMs right now is, you know, jumping ahead a little bit. If Sussman is convicted on this charge, or let's say even if he's acquitted, how do you see that really impacting a broader, wider case that Durham might be pursuing? Well, you know, to be, you know, frank at this point, I, I, the fact that Mark Elias took the stand and testified to me is almost a death knell of a broader case. I, I didn't see how a broader case would not involve him. Yeah, he's the link between the private actors and the campaign. Um, and, and, and potentially, you know, between the, 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 the campaign and, and the FBI. You know, working with Sussman. Um, the fact that he took the stand and testified means he's got no Fifth Amendment need. Um, I, I, nobody made a reference to him having been given immunity. And so that, uh, that just leads me to conclude that he's been told by Durham that he's not a target. Um, and if he's not a target, then who else could be a target? I mean, I've, I've kind of assumed for a long time that the public actors, the people in the FBI, are not ultimately going to be targeted for, for criminal prosecution. Um, 
And if if so so Jaffe conceivably, but how do you get a broader case that you know pivots off of a Sussman conviction potentially with Sussman cooperation that doesn't include Mark Elias? So I you know I I'm I'm scratching my head. I kind of I had always assumed there was a broader case out there, and this was just a means. This case was a means to an end, but you know I'm I'm not so convinced of that anymore. That's interesting. That I, I mean, Elias is obviously a prosecution witness, but he was not he was not friendly. I mean, there's no indication that he got a deal um, with immunity. But I, I also had sort of the same thought with Laura Sego. For somebody that got immunity, they really didn't get anything from her yesterday. I, I, I know you kind of made the point earlier, but to give somebody immunity and then bring them in, and there's really nothing that she said that you know was really central to the case or or that seemed you know ultra necessary. She did testify to a certain meeting that she was a part of where um, Sussman, Elias, and Joffe were present. Um, so maybe that. You know, maybe that's it. I mean, I'd hate to think that alone was um, the, the basis to give her immunity just to just to get that point in. That that seems that would seem to suggest that Durham's really reaching and really scraping together um, a case. Yeah, and and I mean that was I had always assumed that that was the meeting that they wanted the testimony about what was said in the meeting. If there was something said in the meeting that was, you know, inculpatory and that they couldn't get it from Sussman because he was, he was a defense lawyer. They couldn't get it from Joffe because he's going to assert the fifth. And I assume they couldn't get it from Elias because he was going to assert the fifth. But Elias didn't. And then her testimony didn't really even cover the substance of what that meeting was or anything, you know, that implicated others in, in a criminal conspiracy, you know, during the course of that meeting. Uh, maybe there's more there. Maybe she's given them more information they just didn't think they needed in this particular trial, so it didn't come out. And you know the defense didn't want to touch it, so they left it alone. You know it's hard to know, but I, you know, I have assumed that they gave her immunity to get her testimony about that meeting because none of the other three participants would testify, and then Elias gets on the stand and testifies. I guess I've also seen a lot of hand wringing from you know a lot of comment commenters on Twitter, especially um, saying you know, well it's a DC jury and you know the judge is letting some of these people sit on the jury or um, these other ten- tangential issues are kind of not going in Durham's favor. But I mean, to my mind, this is actually a pretty simple case and it's it's very much winnable. Um, and Ship, I'll, I'll ask you to get your thoughts, but. I mean, you know, it's just a false statement case. I mean, for all the noise about all these different elements and pieces to it, this is just a false statement case. And for that, German has to show that Sussman lied, and he's done that, and he has to show the lie was material. And as we noted earlier, Baker's testimony today was important for both of those, um, stating that he would make different decisions. That's, that is the, the essence of materiality. And it doesn't actually have to change a decision. I mean, it just has to have the capacity 
to change a decision for a, like a reasonable person. So, you know, if they had known that the clients were the Clintons and Joffe, I think everybody would nod their heads and say, well, yeah, that could, that could change some decisions, especially when the FBI's general counsel is on the stand saying, yes, it would have changed the decision. So, I mean, Ship, do you have any thoughts? Do you, do you think this is heading towards a conviction or, you know, is there a lot of a high likelihood of an acquittal to your mind or do you have any thoughts on that? I, I mean, I, I have, uh, you know, I have suspected it's headed for a hung jury. I, I just don't think, you know, you're going to get 12 jurors in the district to convict. I think there'll be enough cinnamon in the jury room that, you know, that the FBI did the right thing. You know, Sussman gave him information and it was all done right. And, uh, you know, that it should have been investigated. Uh, and, you know, and, and I don't think Durham's going to be allowed to get into deeply enough the idea that this was, that this information was all faked. I think he really needed that second element that not only was Sussman deceptive by providing the information and omitting his client, he, he Durham needed or needs to be able to tell the jury that it was done in a corrupt fashion because the information was spoofed and Sussman knew it was spoofed. Now, whether the evidence takes him that far or not, I don't know. I think, I mean, I suspect Sussman knew it was, it was faked. It was ginned up to, you know, to, to look like something that it was not, which the FBI quickly unraveled. The FBI said it took us a day, less than a day. I knew after looking at it for a couple hours that, that it was not what was represented to be. Okay, so then the question is, well, was it just a good faith error? And I think if if allowed to do so, and not going to be, Sussman could put, or, or Durham could put, you know, experts on the stand to say, no reputable DNS expert would have thought this data reflected what was claimed in the white papers. Any reputable DNS expert DNS expert would have known that what was claimed in the white papers was a radical exaggeration of what the data showed, which only leads to the conclusion that the white papers were purposely misleading. You know, Durham obviously can't present, can't attack that directly, but I thought it was really important to have, I think it was Hellman, take the stand, and he debunked it within a day is basically what he testified to. Um, he was able to take a look at it, and within a couple of hours, he knew it didn't support the narrative that he was given. Um, and, you know, there was issues with the data. And I know there's going to be more testimony from the CIA, I think, probably tomorrow, uh, that's sort of in that same vein, that the, the data was user-created. Um, I think Durham's been given leave to uh, present the findings or the conclusions that the CIA had. So he can't attack it fully um, like you would want, but I, I think the jury might get enough to know or at least have the questions, okay, it is, it is fake, and maybe they won't be able to connect that directly to Sussman, but um, it will 
damage, I think, the defense's ability uh, to pivot off that and say, well, he was just a good citizen and, um, you know, he obviously, you know, he wouldn't have known that it was spoofed. And I thought Baker had a, an important line today because Baker actually said something to the effect of, well, you know, he's not a personal injury lawyer. You know, he's a, he's an, he was, you know, referencing the fact that he's a cybersecurity lawyer who represented the DNC in the, the hack of the DNC matter because he is technically savvy and he does have uh, at least a, a certain skill set in working in the cybersecurity practice that he knows a lot of these concepts and he has some idea of what he might be looking at. Um, Daniel, I, I just had you a speaker. I don't know if you have a question or comment. Go ahead, man. Hey, man. Yeah, I was waiting for you to finish. Um, I just had a question for, I think, Ship. Mostly about, I think about what the uh, what you guys are talking about with Laura Lorcigo and Elias's testimony, especially about something that jumped out to me was in Elias's about he testified about a three hour meeting that they had with Sussman and they worked on a white paper, I think, and he said he just doesn't recall it, and that's like with Laura Sego, she just doesn't recall it. They just, I, I just don't, I don't think that he Durham has the evidence right now that they do remember or that something happens he can't get it out of laura Sigo. she says she can't remember and that was that seems like his last avenue to get like those things in that specific meetings so i think the um yeah i don't know well one thing we haven't seen yet or at least not in i mean to the extent that you can tell from the tweeting Sorry, my mom just walked into my room. <laughs> One thing we haven't seen yet, based on the tweeting, is uh, uh, a government witness who is going to essentially get into the record writings by suspects. You know, emails, you know, text messages, um, you know, correspondence, billings. I, I, I saw a reference, I think, yesterday, Marcy Wheeler said, oh, Sussman's going to use a paralegal and destroy the paralegal's career as a summary witness. That's, I don't even know she thinks, I don't even think she knows what a summary witness is. But, you know, somebody's got to get on the stand. I, I would, you know, I guess you could use a paralegal. I would always use an agent and say, you know, go through, you might have 100 exhibits that the defendant wrote, and they're all admissible because the defendant's statements are not hearsay. And, you know, you go through them one at a time and you have them admitted, you have, you know, marked, identified and uh, admitted and then published for the jury. And then, you know, the agent can testify about, you know, what is when we say published for the jury, that means it's put up on uh, electronic screens for the jury to read in real time, right, during the trial. It's not like they have to wait until they're deliberating to be able to read the contents of, of written documents. You know, the documents are put up on uh, video screens for them to see. And then you can use, you know, various, you know, electronic tools to highlight certain parts of the text. And then, and the witness can sit there and just read from the text. Now, some judges don't like to have a lot of that. Like, you know, we're not going to waste time reading it. The jury will be able to read it when they deliberate. Um, but I've seen some judges just allow hours upon hours of testimony, which is nothing more than the witness reading the text of written documents that have been admitted into evidence. And I've got to believe there's a lot of that coming, um, you know, to establish probably 
uh, you know, the existence of an attorney-client relationship and that Sussman was, in fact, acting on behalf of the campaign and his communications with the campaign proved that. Um, what else is going to be in those writings? That's kind of the $64 question. You know, what other substantive information about this kind of uh, conspiratorial arrangement that, you know, Sussman was involved in with uh, members of the campaign staff and others, uh, you know, what kind of, uh, or no, or Fusion GPS, you know, what, what kind of things did they admit to in communication between each other that they never imagined would be read in an open court before a jury? That's always the fun part. I have sort of a question that leads right into that. And uh, um, so MB actually posted, I think, earlier today, um, some of Sussman's uh, congressional testimony where he states categorically that he was there on behalf of a client. Um, considering or taking into account the fact that Sussman, you know, can't be forced to testify, how is Durham able to explore that testimony that Sussman gave in, in Congress uh, in this trial? And I was thinking, you know, one of the things he could do is just have somebody on the stand read that testimony. But uh, uh, how is the jury able to see the significance of it? Well, that, I mean, that's exactly where you get it on. You just have a witness identify the exhibit. It's a transcript from a congressional proceeding. It can be, uh, I don't know, it's probably going to be a self-authenticating transcript or probably be an official uh, certified copy of whatever was produced by the court reporter that did the transcription. Um, you know, it'll have a, an affirmation or oath page on it that it was testified to under oath. And so it's self-authenticating. You don't have a wit you don't need to have a witness testify about what it is. And, you know, I, I mean, I had used any number of transcripts in trial where I would read, you know, if it's a two party exchange, you know, a question and a, and a witness question answer. I would read the questions if I was the questioner as the prosecutor. And the witness would read the answers in, if, you know, as Sussman. And it would be just as if Sussman was testifying right there in court based upon what he had said under oath in the proceedings before Congress. And the jury would listen to it. Um, and then, you know, the significance of it is essentially, you know, that's what closing argument is for, is to, to draw the jury's attention to evidence that they heard that maybe they didn't understand where it fit at the time they heard it, but the the job of the of the of the uh, attorney giving the closing argument is to make the pieces fit together, to bring the various aspects of the testimony and the evidence into focus, and show how how they fit with one another to tell the story. Hey, Foya fan, how's it going? It's it's going busy, going busy. I just popped in to say hi and see who was here. I missed the trial today, so I have nothing to contribute. Okay. <laughs> well, um, see, we have a question. I'll, I'll start taking some questions, but um, yeah, Foy fan, I like that idea that you had earlier in DMs. Um, should definitely set up a a chat sometime. Okay, well that I can that I can mention. That, okay, uh, that Undead Foy and I were were bouncing back and forth the idea today 
of maybe having a, a space sometime in the future on the subject of FOIA reform and invite uh, uh, certain uh, people in Congress, their, their staff, anyone who's running or anyone who's interested in the subject, because um, obviously our FOIA system is uh, broken. It's, it's pathetic uh, what we have to do to try to get our hands on documents that are supposed to be public and that are supposed to be freely made available to the public. They, especially on the federal level, they, if, it's, if it's anything that's at all of a political hot potato, they delay it for years. They redact the living heck out of it. And they um, come up with every excuse not to produce things. It's pretty pathetic in a country that has a statute that's called the Freedom of Information Act. Uh, but that's a subject for another day. Yeah, I can't agree more strongly. I mean, probably 90% of my FOIAs have been at the federal level. And to this day, I have had zero FOIAs processed at the federal level. Every, every FOIA document I've gotten has come from a state agency or a university or um, something, something like that. So I don't even know how many FOIAs it is. Probably 120, 130 FOIAs probably at the federal level. And zero, not a single one has been processed, which is just, it's just insane. Let me, let me mention this. I can, it would be hard for me to imagine as somebody who worked 22 years in the Department of Justice, it would be hard for me to imagine a worse job in the federal government than having to respond to FOIA requests. It's just like, to me, it would be a mind numbing process. I I don't disagree with that, but I mean, it seems like all they're doing is cutting and pasting a rejection level level, and then I don't know, spend the rest of their time ordering pizza or something. Because <laughs> yeah, ninety percent of the time is is writing letters telling you how long it's going to be to get anything, <laughs> and ten percent is actually going through and just redacting documents and putting B five C two A over the redactions. I. It, I swear, every time I get a, a rejection form, it's like they just did like a random exemption generator or something. Like it, it doesn't make any sense. They're just they just throw up any exemption they feel like. But yeah, I, FOIA fan, I, I can't wait to do that chat, and hopefully, hopefully we get a nice crowd for that one because that's yeah, it's way overdue. We need some reform there. Um, hey, Robin, I. I see you are a speaker. I don't know if you have a question or comment. Go ahead, though. Hi. Um, yeah, I do. Uh, it goes back to Laura Sego, And I was really disappointed that, like some of you have talked about, how um, it didn't seem like she um, did a lot. But I think it's because we aren't privy to, um, well, we didn't obviously get to see or hear the t testimony, but even getting a transcript is kind of difficult. And I was just, I did um, get a copy of her testimony. Um, basically, I think it was from the guy on the YouTube. He has um, on his mind map or his map thing, he, he has a link to the testimony there or to the transcripts, I should say. Anyway, I was reading and she actually, you know, testified to having, to saying Elias is, was her main contact about, all of this. So she named Elias and um, and she named all of the guys that, that are, you know, Sussman, Elias, Joffe, and uh, I don't know what was the fourth one. There was a fourth one. But anyway, 
I'm just wondering, will they bring her back at any point? Or is that it for this te- for this trial? I know we you guys had already talked about that. But because we can't see until you actually start reading the transcript. I mean, there's more in the transcript than obviously was on the Twitter feeds, which was so disappointing. But um, yeah, so I'm just curious. Do you know if she could be brought back at any point in this trial? Uh, Generally, a witness is either released or subject to recall. because The witness is there in response to a subpoena. So at the end of their testimony, you know, a judge will ask both sides anything further for the witness. And if both sides know that, if both sides believe that they're done, that they, there's nothing more in this case that they want, then they'll just, you know, advise the judge the witness can be released, meaning the witness can go back home to wherever they came from, you know, because uh, many of the witnesses are probably from out of town. And but sometimes you'll say, you know, I'd like to have the witness reserved uh, to be recalled later in the case. And then the judge will say, you know, judge agrees. Most of the time they do. The judge say, okay, well, you're subject to recall. So whatever hotel you're in, go back there and wait for somebody to call. And would but that I, be, would that be addressed in the transcript? Would that be stated there? Usually, usually it's right on the record there at the end of the witness's testimony. Okay. I'll have to look for that then. Yeah. Okay. Cause it just seemed like um, for some reason it didn't seem like, well, as far as I've read so far, it doesn't seem like the prosecution really asked. Well, she said she didn't recall what was really discussed, except that they were dealing with Trump, you know, bad things for about Trump. And then, you know, the Alpha Bank thing. So that's all she said. But she, they didn't get anything like, you know, a discussion point or anything from that. And I was just like, that's, I guess, what I was hoping for. And so I'm wondering maybe that might come up later but maybe not all right sorry thanks that's all i have yeah no it's a good question and we kind of talked a little bit about that earlier i mean um yeah i mean durham gave laura siegel immunity and it doesn't seem like he got a whole lot out of her testimony other than perhaps um mentioning very briefly just this meeting that occurred between herself sussman elias and jothy and you know ship brought up the point earlier i mean they didn't even get to the they didn't even get into the conversation that was had at that meeting they just basically left it wide open and i think they they described it very generally as relating to to the alpha bank allegations so yeah it is a little bit unusual but um yeah we'll see if she pops up further down the road maybe in other trials or or what the case might be you know one of the things to circle back to elias he, he just seems so comfortable with himself and brazen and like he didn't have a care in the world that he, he had any kind of uh, liability or, or danger going on. And he, you know, the fact that he said, not only did I not know that Sussman took the, this, these documents to the, or didn't approve of him bringing them to the FBI, I wouldn't have wanted him to because we didn't want the FBI to have them because that would slow things down. Well, at the same time, they're moving heaven and earth to push the steel dossier to the FBI. So Elias is just full of shit and he's just brazenly saying this stuff. And that that's more worrisome than anything. I think that's spot on. And to some extent, I really like the fact that Derm has this trial going on right now 
And some of these witnesses are being locked into testimony. And I don't know if Lies is going to be prosecuted or the subject of any investigation, but I mean, to have him on record now, obviously he testified before the grand jury, but um, this sort of adds to it. And there's a few statements that he's mentioned um, that are lies. Like, you know, we might not have the evidence to say that they are lies uh, conclusively, but there's no doubt in my mind. I mean, he's lying, right? And I don't know. You know, is there a, a single text message out there that Durham's going to find someday, or is he going to flip a witness one day? And are these statements going to come back as perjury charges for Elias? I think that would be that'd be ideal, right? Um, does anybody else have any questions or anything? If you want to ask a question or if you have a comment, you can request to speak. I'll uh, keep this open for a little bit. Uh, we try to do these as often as we can. I'm, I'm certainly planning on doing one on Monday. Um, so I'm, I'm had, heading out to Washington, D.C. this weekend. Um, I'll be at the trial. I'm planning Monday through Wednesday. And I'll probably host chats every night, um, Monday through Wednesday for sure, because... I'll actually be able to see the people and, and sit in the trial. And, you know, if I happen to pick up something that people are tweeting out that, um, or didn't tweet out, then I'll be able to talk about that. So, uh, let's see here. Hey, rough cut. What's up, man? I'm sorry, rough cut. What's up? Okay. Uh, let's go to JH. What's up, man? Oh, can you, uh, I guess, I guess the, the quick question I, or question slash comment is, you know, I kind of get the feeling that, uh, Seagull was given immunity, you know, to testify. And then, uh, judge Cooper sort of limited all the possibilities to which she could testify to, you know, and so that, you know, their, their great witness was sort of neutered by the judge, you know, after, after she was put forward as a witness. So I, I don't know if that's the case or not, but it kind of seems that way to me. That is a good point. That is a good point. So she was originally, I think, um, put on the witness list and kind of introduced into all this as Durham was going to try to pursue this, gr you know, this greater conspiracy joint venture um, theory that he was going to present at trial which involved Fusion GPS, Rodney Jothy, and, and others. And in that case, she might have been more, more useful. So I, I, that's a good point. Hey, guys, this is rough cut. Sorry, I was on mute. <laughs> no problem. What's up, man? Hey, guys, I, like I said, I, was, I appreciate you guys doing this. It's pretty awesome to be able to talk about these things and kind of get perspectives. So with Elias and, and some others, so many of these folks that, that prepare perpetuated this this lie in the scheme are lawyers and even though Sussman may or may not be found guilty hopefully guilty is there any cause just like Elias has done with lawyers that are representing people you know for January 6th and things along that line is there any cause for anybody to go after his law license and the others that are lawyers for kind of perpetuating this even though a guilty you know they may not be found guilty just based on the profession you know conduct and things along that line thanks Yeah, that's a great question for Ship. I don't know if he wants to comment on that, um, but it seems like they could face sanctions or at least ethics um, investigations, even if they're not criminally responsible. 
Yeah, you know, I, I mean, they're they are advocating on behalf of a client. Um, you know, if if Sussman, yeah, if it, a bar complaint is made on the basis that he knowingly took false information to the FBI for the purpose of causing the FBI to initiate a criminal investigation, that's eh, an actionable claim. I mean, a bar association would probably. You know, if if sustained, if factually accurate, the bar association would take, you know, dim view of that. And and you know, regardless, well, I guess I shouldn't say that. The outcome of the case will have a big impact on you know Sussman's uh, legacy as an attorney going forward. You know, it, it will you know if he's convicted, it will you know, you know do great damage to his reputation, uh, which you know was you know, decent in terms of in the in the narrow area of specialty that he occupied with you know a significant you know government provided expertise you know as a, as a cybersecurity specialist in sort of the early days of that uh, area of criminal specialty um, you know I can remember I, I I I thought about jumping to cyber back in you know after 9/11 and national security and, and cyber and, and looked into it. And I didn't have a technical background, you know, so kind of weighed against me. They really were looking for uh, uh, prosecutors who had some kind of, you know, computer or engineering background and not have to, like, learn everything from, you know, uh, basic, you know, forward. Um, so, uh, you know, and he had that. He, I don't know what his background was, but, but he did, you know, venture off into that specialty area and obtained a great amount of, of expertise, which he was then able to take with him into private practice and, and gave him some credibility and some, some cachet in the business. And, you know, that will be greatly tarnished. And, you know, he was let go by Perkins Coie and, and would likely have a hard time finding, even if he doesn't lose his license, a la Kevin Kleinsmith, you know, he'll likely have a hard time finding, uh, you know, a top flight law firm that would take him you know elias has had to go out and start his own um so you know all of those all of that remains to be seen whether others you know he, he's the only one right now accused of a crime uh so his conviction would be you know the event that might precipitate some form of action against his license um at this point you know others would just simply have to have bar complaints filed against them for you know, allegations of misconduct short of criminal activity, you know, unless Durham chooses to you know, charge more people. Good stuff. Hey, Daniel, what's up, man? Yeah, I saw another question, I guess. Uh, I read that Laura Siegel's her uh, immunity was trial immunity, immunity. So does that mean that Durham hasn't, like, deposed her or, like, interviewed her now without her weight, like, asserting her fifth amendment right or is he going to get any of that like or is it just what you know she testified at trials that's all it's going to be that's trial immunity i don't know just wondering for shit yeah i'd have to see her agreement to see if she got transactional immunity or use immunity um yeah i think it was use immunity it looked like so i thought that was interesting yeah and and so that's more limited you know, she could still potentially face exposure if, if uh, Durham had, you know, independent evidence un, un, untainted by her testimony, which is protected. Um, 
But yes, he, was he he wasn't able to get like her to waive any waive her Fifth Amendment then fully. Yeah, yeah. So there would be limits, and and uh, again, it's all it's all it's all dictated by the paperwork. And without reading the paperwork, I really couldn't say. Thank you. I, you know, honestly, I'd like uh, if anybody. I mean, I see some familiar names on here, people that I'm sure have uh, interesting perspectives to offer based upon, you know, what they have uh, read and listened to over time, and now what they're seeing and hearing in the trial. Uh, you know, I think everybody's heard quite enough from me over the last several weeks doing these, so I'm curious to hear from others. Yeah, let's take a few more questions. We'll try to give Ship a break. Um, hey, Kimmers, what's up? Uh, let's see here. Kimmers, I believe your name is. If you have a question or comment, go ahead. Uh-oh. Lost her. All right, let's see what else we got here. Uh, Buff, yeah, hey, you know, my question is, uh, after these proceedings, win or lose, what happens to special counsel? That's all I got. Thank you. Yeah, special counsel Durham's still going to go. Um, he's still he's still got an active criminal investigation that he is pursuing. Um, we don't know when that'll actually end. It'll, it'll end whenever Durham says it's it's done. So uh, beyond that, we still have a, a trial for Igor Danchenko. I believe that's still scheduled in October. Um, so that'll be the next time we hear for Durham from Durham for sure. Um, but yeah, he's still investigating. Uh, everything that happened and you know based on what i've seen i wouldn't be surprised if he's you know still got another year or two to go thank you Hello. hi I, yeah. this, this is kim i keep getting my <laughs> mic turned off and on. i figured it out i think anyway i have a question that kind of goes back to yesterday's or day before yesterday's conversation that y'all had um and Hans had said something that the way Durham has set this whole case up is that, you know, Sussman and everybody duped our FBI and the FBI's the good guys. So that's going to set things up for later trials that we can't go after the guys in the FBI that did do something wrong. Is that true? Or, we're, or can we turn around and say, you know, that these guys they were part of the conspiracy. They were part of it too. And look, can, you know, I just, I just don't see how we cannot let the people that were doing the wrong things within the FBI get away with this. You know, I, this is what I'm just dumbfounded by. Yeah. So Hans is, is obviously brilliant and he's been looking at this for a long time. Um, but on this one, I think I disagree a little bit. Um, I think generally speaking, people that have been following this kind of in this corner, if you will, um, are moving away from the idea that uh, members of the FBI or the Obama administration or State Department 
will be prosecuted. I think we're all moving away from that. But I'm not quite ready to rule it out yet. And I, from the standpoint of his comment that the FBI is being set up as the victim, that's mm-hmm. true, but it's not dispositive for, um, I guess, their ability to be uh, prosecuted later. Like, if they're a victim here, that doesn't rule out the idea that they could face criminal liability themselves. But as an institution, they are a victim in that they received false, manipulated, fabricated data um, in this case. And, and the Steele dossier was obviously fabricated too. So in that sense, you could say, well, yes, the FBI is a victim. But the challenge, and I think, it's, I think it was Schiff that pointed this out, um, you know, the challenge becomes if you want to hold them criminally liable, barrier number one is that they did receive fabricated data. Um, in this case, in the Alpha Bank, but also fabricated from the Steele dossier. Um, so, you know, that's barrier number one is that, okay, what they were actually receiving merited investigation, you would have to say. Um, and then barrier number two is you have to differentiate uh, an FBI agent who might be overzealous in pursuing this false allegations and overzealous in believing in its veracity um, and then you have to differentiate that between, you know, somebody that has malicious intent or uh, criminal intent to say, okay, I'm going to discard the fact that I know this is false so that I can push forward this investigation. And, you know, especially six years later, there's not going to be a whole lot of documentary evidence that's new. Um, you know, maybe there's some government issued cell phones that have some text messages on them, but they're probably not going to get personal cell phones at this point. You know, those, those cell phones are probably long gone. So well, they're in place I, with I a lot of challenges. Wonder, yep. I wonder about this. Um, and, and, you know, it is what it is with the tweet from um, George Papadopoulos, what, a couple days ago, tweeted that his sources, so whatever that means, that um, there are agents within the FBI that are, turning like crazy over all of this that are just you know ratting people out and how much do you believe of that from Papadopoulos being that he was part of this you know uh unfortunately I don't put any faith or confidence whatsoever in Papadopoulos um I don't buy that he actually has any sources and um more than anything he he's trying to market a book and I don't blame him for that um, but in order to sell his book, he has to kind of stay, stay relevant and um, kind of, you know, in the mix. So if you follow his, his Twitter account long enough, you see basically the same five or six posts over and over. Um, yeah. So he just keeps retweeting them all out and he tries to stay relevant. And, you know, every now and then he does tweet out something new that that might be true, but he's kind of overplaying it a little bit. So when and even the comment about the FBI agents flipping, I mean. That's not really true. I mean, Durham's calling some prosecution witnesses that are from the FBI. Uh, that's, it's, I think that's what he's referencing, and it's not a true flip. They're just, they're just going to testify um, based on some observations or, or evidence or whatever. So, Just sad that the, the, there are some bad cops in this. Regardless, there are some bad cops. I just have no doubt about it. And the fact that the bad cops, you know, they, they, can't, they have put so much doubt and distrust within the FBI, the CIA, all of them. And there are bad cops, you know, and it just, 
it's a shame. Um, I'm not giving up hope, though. I think uh, I think there's going to be some people get it that we had no idea, and I'm looking forward to that. So that'll be good. Yeah, that, that's entirely possible. I mean, John Ratcliffe is somebody I put a lot of faith in. He's been, you know, pounding the table that he's seen some documents that that merit more indictments, and I think he's talking about government actors. So I, you know, that that's and something Kat? to put some faith in. Yep. So, all right. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Mm-hmm. You know, I think the the big date that's coming up, and Brian, you could probably pull it out of your head, but it's the final renewal of the final FISA uh, renewal. And uh, that, without doubt, they knew was bogus. They were presenting false information to the court. Somebody knew. I mean, obviously, you know, it's easy to say they, but there were some people that knew they were putting false information for the FISA court. So uh, sometime in July, I think that that'll be the that'll be a big day. If that goes by, then I think a lot of hope for this stuff goes out the window. Absolutely. That that is the date that I'm really watching for. The fourth FISA warrant was by far the worst. Um, they obviously had debunked a lot of stuff by then, and the first three FISA warrants didn't yield anything. Um, so it's not just the renewal day. I mean, I think King has pointed out you could technically make an argument that um, you could bring a case through the end of the FISA coverage, which I think is September. Um, but yeah, I mean, we're only even September is only four months away. So um, if Durham's going to bring a case, I mean, it's going to be within the next four months, I would have to assume. I mean, you could, you could look at it. Look, there's a July 2018 uh, memo sent to Congress from the FBI in which they reiterate false claims that Igor Danchenko was truthful and honest. Um, you could potentially look at that as extending certain statutes of limitations. Um, I think a comment earlier was about a conspiracy charge. Now, I see a conspiracy charge coming for private actors. Somebody like Rodney Jothy, um, maybe members of the Clinton campaign. I, I do see that as plausible. I know Jake Sullivan was in contact with Rodney Jothy. Um, so I see a conspiracy charge there. Uh, I don't necessarily see a conspiracy charge coming from to the FBI. So I've I've always felt there might be some process crimes um, or um, you know, some crimes around these FISA renewals uh, that I always thought was pretty likely to at least get a couple of those, but um, I have been moving away from that. And, you know, it's hard to say at this point, I, I don't know, you know, John Radcliffe said he's got a thousand documents and they, you know, there should be a lot of people indicted. I, I don't know how much faith to put in that. I, He's obviously seen the documents that we haven't, but uh, it's getting pretty late in the game. And, um, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't feel like Durham should still be getting new evidence as it relates to the FBI. Um, it, it feels like he should be done with that by now, but who knows? He could still be chasing down some leads. Um, Rodney Joffe, I mean, that's more on the private side, but he, he's got contacts throughout the government. He's got multiple businesses, um, relationships throughout the, the DOD. He's got a company in Panama. He's got uh, connections through Ops Trust and all these different organizations. You know, you have to you have to pierce privilege if you want to go and investigate this stuff. So, you know, I could see another year passing before at least another year before even an indictment of, of somebody like Rodney Joffe might come. Um, so I, I don't know. I, I think it might be a while before we find out, but 
at least on the government side, I, I would have to think, you know, next four months, uh, other than Mueller. I mean, Mueller's is kind of a separate issue. They, they wiped out a lot of phones, obviously. Um, we're learning more information as it relates to David Dagan and Manos from Georgia Tech and their assistance that they provided to special counsel Mueller. And, you know, the question's out there. I mean, all these text messages that were wiped, do those contain contacts with Manos and David Dagan, or um, do they have the, the body of work that those researchers provided or, or don't they? And we'll see, I guess. I, I don't know. Sort of rambling with that one, but uh, MB or Cody, do you guys have anything else before I take a couple more? You know, we haven't brought up, we haven't talked much about Rodney Jaffe today and it just kind of occurred to me reading through all this that, win, lose, or draw, this jury could walk away going, why isn't Rodney Jaffe the one on trial here? Because that guy seems to be just, you know, what's going on with him? And uh, I think some of the stuff that came out about his, you know, his handling agent in Grasso, and uh, we, you know, we kind of speculated that one, you know, it was just a theory, but maybe he he pushed all this information through Sussman so that it would get back to him, knowing that the FBI would go to him as the DNS expert. And that would be, I mean, that would be incredible. I, I, I would think Durham would have figured that out by now, but if, if that happened to be true, that's pretty crazy. Well, it's really interesting that he brought these allegations, that Joffe brought the allegations to Grasso apparently the same month that Sussman brought them to the FBI. So that, that's kind of symptomatic of what we've seen throughout Russiagate and that they create multiple streams of information flows to create a sense of corroboration when in reality, it's, it's the same people that are doing it. Um, but because they feed it in through multiple channels, it creates this pressure uh, for the FBI to act. So I definitely want to learn more about that. And then I think we learned today that um, Sussman and Joffe did meet with James Baker um, on a, an unrelated matter. I don't recall what it was. I don't know if MB, I don't know if you remember what the topic was but I, I thought that was really interesting in that James Baker knows who Rodney Joffe is and then Joffe was hiring Sussman uh, to bring this information forward so it, it kind of goes to a point that we've raised over the last couple nights you know is this more of a wink wink nod nod situation in that um, Baker actually knew what was going on and I don't know if we'll ever know that but uh, Daniel, what's up, man? Hey, so uh, I was just thinking, and this is something that I've uh, thought about a lot, and I uh, it was going back to what someone said earlier about uh, Hans about the FBI being duped, and uh, I agree that's something that I disagree about because I think that we can separate the alpha allegations from, let's say, the FISA abuse or the Mueller's, Mueller's team or actions from that because... Those were debunked, like we said, very quickly. Didn't really have a large bearing on like further investigation because they didn't go further with it. So I think if if Durham decided to charge FBI agents in this conduct, he could say, you know, the FBI knew what it was doing in this sense, you know, in the would they have to check his interviews. He denied it all, you know. And that the alpha allegations is them being duped. Not by that allegation have no bearing, you know, on the main investigation.
Yeah, I think you made some good points there. I'd have to agree with that. Um, let's see. JH, what's up? Yeah, I guess uh, I had a couple questions about some conflicts that have recently arisen. Uh, and one of them is new, and that that's juror number five in the trial, uh, whose daughter is on a rowing team with Sussman's daughter, and what possible effects that might have later on. I guess it's it's a fairly small question. But uh, and then the other thing is something that Technofog pointed out uh, today or yesterday, and that is that uh, Jake Sullivan's wife, uh, Margaret Goodlander uh, is uh, a counsel to Merrick Garland. And uh, is that, it, you know, I guess it, it's kind of a separate issue directly from this trial, but it, it seems like that, you know, that's just more of this, <laughs> this web that's there. And it's just, it, it's so frustrating, but maybe comments on that. I don't know. Yeah. You mind if I add on to your question real quick? Because I, I forgot about that. Um, Technofog actually said that she was keeping close tabs on Durham's investigation. I don't know how where he got that from. He said there's going to be more on that, but that was just add on. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, I know a little bit of the background or the backstory. Um, Techno has shared kind of privately with us. Um, but yeah, that'll be a story. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna stomp on a scoop. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know how long it'll be, but Techno will have a, a story on that. Um, so I, I, I'm going to leave it there on that one. Um, as it relates to your other question, juror number five. So this was a, a story that came out today or some tweets that came out and that um, the prosecution was challenging juror number five and asking that she be dismissed from the jury pool because... Uh, apparently she found out or she realized at some point that her daughter is on the same rowing team or swim team or something like that as Sussman's daughter. Um, obviously, uh, as it turns out, she didn't know that on Monday. Um, she should have disclosed that to the court. But she came on her own volition today and said, you know, hey, I just realized, I just found out my daughter is on the same rowing team as Sussman's daughter. Um so it was actually a, a pretty bad move. And, and um, the YouTube video from Rob tonight kind of actually broke this down a little bit uh, in the transcript in that when the prosecution, the Durham team actually challenged this juror, they did it in front of her, which is kind of a bad move. I mean, they asked that she be dismissed with her right there um, in the midst of this recess. So... <laughs> With her, with her staying, you know that you don't know how that's going to play in her mind. Whether that um, was would be looked on unfavorably from her. So, um, yeah, that's that's probably an unfortunate, unforced error from them. MB, yeah. just sorry. I, go see ahead. It, I see it as commendable, you know, that she came forward and volunteered this information when she could have just kept quiet. But regardless, you know, that doesn't remove this conflict. <laughs> and if I had a teenage daughter, <laughs> you know, that was friends with the daughter of the defendant, you know, I certainly would not be able to remove that from my mind if I was deciding innocence or guilt. <laughs> so I don't know. It's just it, it seems uh, Judge Cooper just seems like awfully willing to just sort of wave these things away. Although maybe yeah, she'll I be mean, 
still be put into the alternate pool instead of the active journal pool. I don't. Yeah, once you actually get into the transcript, though, they're the daughters are not actually friends, and there's actually thirty or four forty rowers on this team, and this, you know, whichever daughter it is, is a couple years ahead of the other. So, you know, they're not friends. They don't share classes. Um, they're not friends on the rowing team. They 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 certainly know who each other are, um, but you know, as it relates to today. Uh, you know, Jur said, you know, they're not friends. So that's pretty important. I, I feel like obviously if they were friends, it's a totally different ball game. In that case, yes, the, the juror has to, the juror has to go. Um, but the, the daughters are not friends. And in, in that respect, I mean, you know, she came on her own volition and, you know, she had malicious intent where she was going to like, you know, throw the trial or whatever, or rig the trial for Sussman. She wouldn't have brought it up herself, right? She would have just said not guilty or, or whatever. So I, I don't really see that it's all that much to worry about personally. I kind of see it the same way. I, I, I would think that this kind of thing has to happen all the time, just the law of numbers. And probably if you went through everybody that everybody knows on that jury, there's probably more connections that we just, you know, someone hasn't thought of or they don't know of. And you know, this is DC. If this was in some little town, <laughs> you know, there's just no way that you're going to get a jury and you know have zero connections with with uh, the defendant. You know, second hand, third hand, whatever it is. So, I, I it it seems to me like I, I'm I'm not too surprised. Like you know, I kind of wish uh, one of the lawyers was here to speak to it, but it seems from the outside looking in, it's probably not that unusual. Yeah, not 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 to beat the the dead horse, you know, I, it is a pretty small issue, but there there was a, a specific question on the jury questionnaire, which makes me think that the question is important. You know, do any of your family members know any family members of the defendant? Someone someone posted that question earlier today, but uh, it just seems like the questionnaire made it like a significant question, and not having that information during jury selection seems to be important. But that is, yeah, whatever, yep. Yeah, I mean, and that's what the prosecution argued was that if the juror had recalled this or known this on Monday and, and filled out the form, they would have used one of their challenges and dismissed her. So, yeah, I mean, the, the judge probably should have removed her, but I, I don't, I don't see it as a big deal. Um, you know, as MB said, you're going to have common connections. I mean, that as I do my sleuthing, I, you know, I found that I actually have. Facebook friends in common with people around this investigation that are like subjects of people or people that I'm looking into, which is amazing because I don't live close to them at all. Like we don't, you know, we don't share the same schools or, or anything like that. We're hundreds of miles apart and we have Facebook friends in common. So, you know, it's a small world now. Uh, you're always going to have connections, I think, more and more uh, between people like that. Um, I think we'll try to take a couple more questions and I, I might go ahead and end it, uh, relatively early tonight. As, as I said, I mean, I'm, I'm going to be flying out here, uh, a couple days and, and heading to Washington, DC. So, uh, Monday through Wednesday, I plan on having chats and, uh, giving more coverage. So I, I don't want to go like three, four hours, uh, as we do multiple chats here. You should see if you can get your way into the press room. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I don't know if there's rules on that. I, 
I think I saw Leslie was talking about maybe going to the press room, and obviously she's not she's not really press. I mean, she has written a couple of articles, I think, for for Red State. Um, so I, I don't know. I don't know if they'll let me in there or not. Um, maybe just hang an ID tag around your neck, and maybe no one will ask any questions. <laughs> yeah, I I don't know if they're checking for IDs or or what the case is. It obviously yeah, at least first come first serve for the main courtrooms. Yep. Yeah, for the, for the main courtroom. That that's really was my original plan, but um, with people not really live tweeting anymore, uh, I was thinking about trying to get into the position I could do live tweets. So we'll see. Um, let's see here. Hunter's laptop. What's up? Hunter's laptop. What's up? Hey, sorry about that. My mic was off. No problem. Um, my biggest question is I'm confused about why Joffe hasn't been charged yet because it seems like he has obviously violated his – if you're a confidential source for the FBI mm-hmm. – there's got to be some sort of rules on how you're telling, you know, your, your connect what's going on. And to go around that, if it's just me and you talking and you're an FBI agent and I lie to you, I can go to jail. Well, if now you're paying me and then I also go around you intentionally, that seems like a very obvious violation of some sort of law if it's simply a violation of law to lie to an FBI agent. And so is, is it possible or do you, are everybody in the sluice corner thinking that that might be the next, you know, like shoot a drop or am I missing something? And that's my question. So, yeah. So as it relates to Rodney Jonathan, um, I don't think it's a crime for him to go around like his, his handler um, working as a confidential human source is certainly a violation of FBI policy. And that's why he was fired as a CHS. But I don't think it's a crime for him to do that. Um, his criminal exposure relates to primarily the Alpha Bank uh, allegations, that, as far as we know. And that involves a contract with DARPA. Uh, there's a potential of a major fraud uh, case being being made against him there. Um, Computer Crimes Act, I think that kind of statute comes into play as well, Um, particularly misappropriating his access to gather derogatory information on Donald Trump, Um, the executive office building, his his apartments, things of that nature. Um, But moreover, I mean, generally, I I think it's a conspiracy charge at this point. well, a conspiracy charge seems most likely for, for Joffe. And the issue right now is you don't indict him because at that point you can't really gain additional evidence. So they're just going to put on the strongest case possible. Uh, there's really not any statute of limitations concerns for, for Joffe. Because um, of conspiracy. So he's, well, and the conspiracy yes. is essentially right now, if we think about it, the conspiracy is... If there is a convictable conspiracy, it is currently going on while they are trying this case. 
I don't know about that. I, I would I would put the date into 2018 because we know Rodney Joffe was assisting Daniel Jones's Senate investigation into the Alpha Bank claims. Uh, he was pro- providing data and analysis to Daniel Jones. But is is um, is so that is fighting this case and and going against it and potentially lying and perjuring yourself furthering the conspiracy which furthers the you know your time frame when it comes to being charged and it, it seems well, like Joffy, right now that that's that's what is going on with him uh, you know claiming privilege and things along those lines if they actually don't have privilege because they're you know what is it work product you know work product and then also they are not you know he who did he pay so if you don't pay anybody, how is there any, you know, privilege if you don't actually, I mean, I'm getting down to my, my mob movie uh, reality of, of law, but it's like, hey, give me a dollar and now I'm your attorney. But if that never went on, then does that not have something to do with it? It's like if every attorney I talk to, I now have privilege when they decide to declare privilege or am I misunderstanding this? Well, Joffy hasn't done anything wrong uh this year at least i mean he hasn't given any testimony on under oath um other than his civil deposition in the alpha case um and i i don't see any criminal exposure coming out of that deposition so claiming privilege when you know that's kind of a fuzzy topic that's not criminal um i guess i I understand that where okay this is a legal situation where you can potentially claim privilege so we can't hold that against you now. That makes that makes yeah. Sense. Well, under a, a conspiracy statute, it, it doesn't necessarily have to be a criminal act that furthers the conspiracy. It's it's, it's what's called an overt act, and an overt act is not necessarily a criminal act, but it's just a simply an act that furthers a conspiracy. I don't see anything like that for Joffe right now, but in a in a conspiracy case. It's the last overt act of any conspirator in the conspiracy. So I guess my, so that my could... question is, the defenses that are being put forward right now with what Elias did when he essentially set up a mistrial intentionally, you know, it, he wasn't being hostile to Sussman. He was intentionally setting up a mistrial with those, you know, he, he was playing the, the legal rules because he's a you know, smart attorney. He knows what he's doing. So he's setting that up. Is, is it possible to use any of the things that are being done in terms of the maneuvering with the, you know, calling on, you know, like trying to hold back documents? And then we find out that those documents should not be withheld. Is that ever a potential place to go you are futuring the conspiracy because we're prosecuting the conspiracy now you are doing everything you can to block it in ways that are not you know true you're you're just making bullshit up they're saying that it's for one thing and it's not is that not a continuance of the conspiracy no i i don't believe so i i think maybe and this is a definitely legal question but if he perjured himself in the alpha deposition in furtherance of the conspiracy, that should be an overt act. Okay. If 
if it, I, that, that, that's my interpretation, but I'm not a lawyer. So, you know, we, we can definitely track that one down because it is a really good question. But I, I would think that, you know, if, if he had to lie in that deposition to keep the conspiracy going, then that I would think would be an overt act. And, and, and the big problem is, is, is proving it's a lie. And it, it really comes down to the definition of overt, too. So it has, you know, that that's got some sort of clarity to it, I guess. But well, and there's nothing like that that's going to come out of the Joffe deposition from the Alpha case because he took the fifth on pretty much everything. Yeah, but I'm talking about um, his, his what he did in the trial, where he, like, it, it was that was an intentional act by him, and I don't think anybody that looked at it was like, oh, now Joffe and Elias are, are enemies and Elias is coming after after him. That was, okay, I'm going to try to blow this whole trial up and this is the best way to do it. And at some point, yeah, it's like, how I don't, do you I don't... use the law in your favor? And then there should be a, a point where like, okay, now you are obstructing the law by doing these games. But I guess there's that's just me being idealistic. Yeah, I don't see anything like that coming out of anything that Elias did. Um, I don't know if there's a creative argument to, you know, make an argument for obstruction on the withholding of documents under false privilege claims that are egregiously uh, not privileged. But I, I don't see anything coming out of that either. Um, it makes me so want to become the last over that. I would love to know how to get in those situations and, and weasel my way out like Elias did. I think he did a great job. And if I was ever in trouble, I would definitely hire him at this point. <laughs> well, I mean, look, the, at, look at how Cooper treated this, these privilege claims. I mean, the ones that he, he, he declared invalid, he was just like, no, yeah, you know what? These are not valid. And it wasn't like, Hey, you're in trouble. You, you know, this was bullshit. I, I'm calling bullshit on you. It was like, yeah, shooters get a shoot, but you know, no harm, no, you know, uh, this is how it is. And yeah, it's not like he's going, you know, it was it, like fair play. I, it, it's yeah, it's like a, it's a kind of a good old boys club, it seems like. And these guys are all lawyers and it's like, I'm not going to make you look bad. And it would have to be something so egregious and so obvious and that would be enough to get somebody disbarred or, or something like that, that I think otherwise it's just going to be like, well, you made you you had you thought you had a case and I disagree with you and I'm not going to allow the privilege. And it's like, yeah, but it was bullshit. You know, it was bullshit. So I'm going to I'm going to jump in and ask a question that. The one thing I really love about this whole sleuth corner and whenever i listen to this is you guys stick to the facts of the case and it really doesn't get into politics very often but then i'm listening to this and i'm thinking tactically how do we fight back and everybody that's been involved in any side of the other argument when it comes to election interference and if, if you think those things are all bullshit then fine but what every what what all of those people are facing right now is is getting disbarred, and they're going after those people. They're going after their licenses and stuff. Is there any appetite on the right to do the same to Elias and and all of his friends? Because I think that guy should never practice law again. Like he is a, he seems like a bad actor. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I can't really speak to the appetite of, you know, conservative movement or anything like that. I, I don't see anything right now that would challenge Elias's uh, 
ability to practice law. Um, I think he has some criminal exposure from John Durham, but we'll have to see what develops. And, you know, right now we can't, I can't make predictions on something that's sure that's just not in the body of evidence right now. I, I don't have anything that would say, well, Elias is, Elias is definitely lying here um, with evidence of, of the truth. So, well, either way, Ryan, I appreciate everything you do. And I was following you when you looked like a troll with your Ryan and a bunch of numbers <laughs> uh, account. And I'm super happy that you're back and, I mean, this is awesome. I think this needs more exposure every time. Last time I got on here, I said, how do we make a podcast out of this? And I think that would be an amazing <laughs> thing is one of those NPR style podcasts where you've got like people talking in the background and they've got all that stuff because this is a story that needs to be told. And if it's produced correctly, I think it can be told to more people than we all understand. And it, it, it definitely needs to. But I'll get out of here and I'll listen to all these other things in the, in the coming weeks with this trial. And I hope it uh, keeps going the way it's going. Yeah, I appreciate those, those comments and appreciate that you followed me back then. I, uh, so I, I've actually been banned from Twitter a few times. I, uh, I've had a few different accounts. I've never done anything egregiously wrong. I don't think I've ever actually violated their terms of a service really. Um, but I had an account that was banned, uh, kind of during the great purge of, you know, 2021, I never posted about the election. I didn't post anything controversial. I, all I really did was retweet people for the most part, well, but wasn't the last at one point I posting a FOIA, like documents, yeah. your FOIA, which is literally public information. Yeah. That's bullshit. I think we can yeah, all agree <laughs> on that. And I, I, I appealed that three times, and I told them explicitly that these were FOIA documents that were lawfully obtained, and therefore it's public information and meets their terms of, of condition. And it's like they, there's no human there. It, it's like automated. I, I, I couldn't even get like a real person to actually respond to what I was saying. So that was pretty frustrating. Well, I think the, uh, the rebrand is, is a way better brand name. Undead FOIA is way better than Ryan with a bunch of numbers. So, I, I, you know, you, you live and you learn, and, and you're, you're better for it now. <laughs> and I, well, I appreciate watching. that. <laughs> when, I, when I created the account, that was like just whatever randomly generated um, when I signed up because I, I didn't think I was going to be able to create the account because it, when I had tried before, it like automatically bans you because it, it's associated with an IP address. So, um, I didn't think I'd actually create the counter or be able to be on long. So I, I just had like one tweet in mind and I tw tweeted that out. And then sure enough, I was able to keep the account. So that that's why I had all those random numbers, but well, yeah, I appreciate it. And I, 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 uh, I, I don't know about service. a podcast. I appreciate but... your service. And I also, I honestly do think a podcast where you guys, you King FOIA fan, uh, like just, I mean, if, if anybody can ever get Technofog to talk, that would be amazing. It would be... I've heard him talk. Well, yeah, in public. <laughs> it, would be, it, would be an amazing, it would be an amazing podcast, and I would, I'd be hanging on tight, and I'd be on the Patreon and everything like that. So I appreciate what you're doing, and you know, I'm, I'm listening in, and 
I think there's a lot of people out here like me that, that are listening and just watching going, holy cow, how does this happen? And yeah. you're doing a good job, man. I appreciate that. All right, bud. I'm out. All righty. Thank you. Uh, let's see here. Not Roger. What's up? Uh, not Roger. What's up? Yeah. Uh, thanks for letting me speak. Um, just with regard to that, uh, that juror thing, I don't know if you've read Jonathan Turley's recent articles. It's kind of interesting. Tale of Two Trials. And he points out the difference in how Cooper is treating uh, this situation versus, um, you know, when conservatives are being prosecuted. It's kind of interesting. Um, but I, I had posted a uh, tweet on after Ship had talked about potentially bringing in Durham, will bring in uh, uh, evidence from the communications that Sussman had. And it brought up a question in my mind. Were, were any of those pieces of evidence covered in the Limine um, pre-trial motions or was that limited to other stuff? In other words, are we going to see uh, some significant evidence that may sway the jury towards conviction? Um, so that's one question. The other one kind of tangential is, you know, Siego and, um, and Elias both testified with the grand jury and you would have thought that they wouldn't have been brought to the trial if their grand jury testimony was the same as what we heard in the trial. And I know even Ship kind of was a little bit kind of confused as to why we even had that. Just wondering um, what your guys' thoughts on that are. Finally, the Monaco shenanigans on cyber prosecutions Will that have any impact if we find that, you know, Joffe was spoofing data or is that going to affect something else? <laughs> yeah. So I, I got a little hot under the collar on this one. So uh, department of justice put out some updated policy in that if you misappropriate access, um, but you're, you're acting in good faith, uh, for like security researching, research, security researcher or something like that, um, as long as you're acting in good faith, they're not going to prosecute you, even if you abuse your access or or basically hack somebody. Um, so yes, I I think that has the potential to impact John Durham. Um, I was thinking more specifically of the EOP contract that Rodney Joffe had. So. <clears throat> Joffe was authorized to look at the White House data. Uh, that related to a 2015 hack. And after that, Joffe got access to monitor those data streams. Now, what he ended up doing was he was uh, uh, researching that data stream to look for derogatory information on Donald Trump. That's one of the things that he did. So that would seem to strike at the heart of what this new guidance from the DOJ is going to rule out. Because it's going to be really hard to prove that Rodney Joffe was acting in bad faith 
when he started looking for derogatory information. I mean, Joffe's going to be able to say, well, you know, I had a security concern or, um, you know, something like that. And that's, that's going to provide him some cover. And I don't know, um, you know, I don't know if that's going to impact John Durham or not. I, that's one of the things that I saw as a, a potential predicate offense of a conspiracy charge was like a computer crime, which is a separate statute, um, but is considered a, a predicate offense for a conspiracy. And, you know, it's going to provide a little bit of cover to the people at Georgia Tech, I think, um, or some of the other people that are around this case. More specifically, though, I think it relates to Rodney Joffe. Um, so I, I, um, yeah, I, I, I don't like the ruling at all, or I don't like the policy. Um, I think I, it's my opinion that it is directed at John Durham and, and I hate that. So I forgot what your first two questions were entirely. I don't know if you want to repeat those. Yeah, just, uh, the, the evidence that ship had said might come into the trial related to, uh, Sussman's communications that tend to support the charge that Durham's bringing. Uh, was there stuff in Limine that prevented that type of evidence from being introduced? Sussman's communications, or do you recall? Yeah, so the motions in Limine, uh, the por portions that were granted was uh, excluding any communications that Sussman was not party to with okay. just a, with, and there was just a handful of exceptions. Um, like the emails from fusion GPS, uh, telling certain reporters to do stories on the alpha bank allegations. Those are coming right. in, but other allegations that we're going to support this joint venture conspiracy, those are going to be excluded. Um, okay. so that was kind of central issue there. So the final question I had was, you know, when we were reading about how John Durham had the grand jury and that they've locked in people's testimony so you don't have to worry about Baker or somebody coming in and this totally, you know, saying something different. Um, but, you know, you, that brings up a question. Uh, they had Elias and, and Ciego, uh in the grand jury. And if Elias said he didn't remember in the grand jury, why would they bring him in again? Or if he didn't say, I don't remember, um, how can he change his testimony? Same thing with Siego. You know, it's, it's a puzzle to me that they would put them uh, in the trial if the grand jury testimony was as weak as what we saw in the trial. Yeah, so I think there's obviously some, some portions that were not helpful to, to Durham, but I think those witnesses were brought in for very specific purposes. So Elias was brought in to talk really about the billing records. And also he established the fact that uh, the Clinton campaign had knowledge and interest in the Alpha Bank allegations. And he also uh, uh, confirmed that, you know, for the, the court records that they hired Fusion GPS. So that's important. And then from there, we have Laura Siegel from Fusion GPS confirming that uh, the Clinton campaign, uh, they're working on the behest of the Clinton campaign to advance these Alpha Bank allegations. And she also testified to a very specific meeting between herself, 
Sussman, Elias, and Rodney Joffe, in which uh, Alpha Bank allegations were discussed. So, you know, they didn't go down the, the rabbit hole because they're not real favorable witnesses for Durham. Um, but to get those points in is going to be important because it, it goes to the heart of um, Sussman's lie in that he's saying he was not representing the client. Well, between these two witnesses, you, you actually can confirm that not only does he have a client, but here are the actual specific clients. It's the Clinton campaign, which is established through Elias, and it's Fusion GPS, and uh, to some extent Rodney Joffe, which uh, Sego was actually able to introduce into evidence as well. So that's the whole reason that those two witnesses were brought together, because now there's really no question that Sussman lied. And it, the case from here out is just about materiality. So you think the trial's gone the way Durham was hoping it would? It seems from some of the backseat driving from legal people like uh, McAdoo and others that, you know, the prosecution hasn't really necessarily done a good job dramatically in terms of who goes first and and the questions and making sure the jury doesn't get bored, all of that stuff. Do you think that uh, that it's going the way Durham hopes? Yes, um, certainly today and yesterday, Durham has had a couple really strong days. Um, you know, you can you get a better sense in actually reading through the transcripts, but the questions flow really well. Uh, you know, they're managing the witnesses really, really well. I did read the thread from Leslie McAdoo Gordon, and I think she had a lot of valid points on day one. So day one, I think, was a little bit more disorganized. I, I don't agree with them putting on uh, Special Agent Martin, who's the DNS expert, as the first witness. I think she raised that point, and I... I had some concerns of that myself because they didn't really transition into a data intensive witness list, right? So they start off the, the trial talking about DNS terms and technical stuff. And then they really don't go into the data all that much. And they're actually limited in being able to challenge the data. So special agent Martin was really brought in just to define some terms, but that's kind of a, you know, it's not an ideal way to start off a trial, in my opinion. I mean, I think Leslie brought it up, and I, I would agree. I, I think you want your strongest witness to start off day one. Um, so I, I wouldn't, you know, I don't know. Durham, Durham's been doing this, um, and I haven't. So, you know, I trust Durham in what he's doing. And, you know, he's had a couple witnesses that are uncooperative, but I think he's actually managed them really, really well. And Baker today was absolutely a phenomenal witness for John Durham. Um, Baker's, we're going to hear more from him tomorrow, but Baker had some, had the most important testimony of this entire trial today. And the government got everything they needed out of him. Yeah, that's, that's how I saw it too. Well, thanks for your feedback. Uh, it's given me a little bit more optimism after getting kind of crushed by some of the feedback, the tweets I've seen, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's really hard to get context from tweets. And, you know, yeah. you, you can't blame them. I think they do the best they can. But, you know, your fingers get tired. And, you you know, it's really hard to tweet out sentences in, in real time and at speed. So, 
I well, wouldn't good luck, be too good hard luck on him. You trying to do it? <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know. Yeah, I'm not going to promise anything. I, okay. I might. Uh, I'm going to take and some if, notes. <laughs> if you're a betting man, where do you stand on the question of whether he'll be convicted? Yeah, I, I would say 85 percent conviction. Oh, I, I, yeah, I feel pretty strongly. I, you know, I'm a little bit concerned about a hung jury. Uh, yeah. But there's there's really no potential of a, an acquittal. I, I don't a, see all a the a Tamika Hart type situation. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know who that is right. Yeah, I do. I, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. Thanks a lot. Huh? Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Boy, I have been talking way too much on this one. I wish we had MB. I don't know if you want to jump in. Maybe you can take five or six minutes. <laughs> Crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a little bit more pessimistic than you. Uh, if you want me to rank it, I guess I'm probably 50% acquittal, 50% hung jury, or 49%. I'll leave 1% for uh, conviction. I just, it's a DC jury. And I, you know, I've heard King talk a lot about uh, juries and how you just, it, it's impossible to know what's going to happen. You know, Figuring out what a judge is going to do is one thing, and you put twelve or thirteen people in in a jury room, and you know if you get somebody in there that's like we talked about, kind of an activist, and just leads them down the the primrose path of hey, remember how remember how much we all hate Trump, and let's let me let me go through the evidence and tell you what I think. And I mean, you can see that on Twitter. There's plenty of corners where they're like this this whole trial's a sham, and I'll prove it to you. And you know, I'm sure everybody knows Marcy. We, you know, empty wheel, they can go over and she'll put up, she'll lay out a really good case for if you were, you know, a civilian that walked into this, you would go, yeah, she's absolutely right. And you'd have to know a lot to say, wait a minute, no, 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 no. There's a lot of bullshit happening here, um, which I, I, that's why I think this corner is really important. And I think what Ryan does is awesome. And everybody being here is you're, you're probably like me, you're going out and educating other people and talking to your friends and family if it, you know, trying not to be a bore and, you know, making every conversation about, oh, did you hear what was going on in the, in the Michael Sussman trial? But, you know, I, I've talked to a lot of people and they, they are interested and they, I, you know, it does turn them on that you can explain it in an intelligent way and lay out the facts for them. And then they can go look themselves and find out, yeah, I, I think that that's correct, that this is true. So we'll see. Uh, I, I think that you definitely, it, it has been a roller coaster today and yesterday were so much better than uh, the, the first day. Um, if, if it really kind of depends how, you know, the defense still has, has their case to lay out and we'll see what they do. But, uh, I think, I think the next couple of days of the prosecution will be solid too, because there's definitely some stuff coming in. That's going to be really, really difficult for the uh, defense to get around. If that, uh, I, I assume that transcript from, uh, the house, uh, uh, select, uh, Intel committee is going to come in and that's damning. I mean, that's, he, he, it, it seems like he equivocates and some people are arguing that he, he kind of equivocates about whether he was tasked by his client, but it actually, his equivocation is worse because he says, well, I was, I was sitting in a room with my quiet, my client, we discussed his wants and his needs and his objectives. We came to a conclusion. Then I went out and did what he wanted. It's like, that is the definition of a lawyer lawyering of, of, of taking up your, your client's, uh, uh, being that that person's lawyer, so I uh, it, I assume that'll come in, and that's pretty much gonna be a game set and match for whether he lied. He definitely lied. It's uh, the materiality is gonna be the question, and if this jury just decides we're not going to convict, we're gonna nullify. That is always that's always been the uh, the ace in the hole for the defense that they're just not gonna do it. So I guess we'll see. 
Yeah, I mean, I think the more the jury discusses it, the worse it gets um, for Durham because it, you know, it's important to have all its context about Fusion GPS and and you know the Clinton campaigns out there too. But if they keep this simple, and especially you know they really emphasize some points in their closing arguments, it becomes a really simple case. I mean, it's just a false statement case. I mean, there's there's not a whole lot going on here. Um, the lie is not going to be in question. And, you know, Durham can make that point really simple. Uh, the lie is not in question. Sussman lied. Point number one. So then point number two is just materiality. Did it impact the decision? And that's the question they have to pose it as. You know, if they go off in closing remarks and they, you know, they're outlining Fusion GPS and Clinton and, you know, motivations and stuff, then you, you, you give the jury a lot to talk about and they have to go through all this evidence and then, then they get have the potential of going off track. But if you keep this narrow and focused on the false statement and closing remarks and really narrow the case back down, I think you get a, a, a much higher likelihood of, of a conviction. You know, it's a false statement. He lied. Um, and this is why it's material. One, two, three, four, five points done. And, you give that to the jury, they go back, there's no way that they should be able to quit. Um, maybe there's a hung jury, but I would, I would lean towards a, a conviction. So, uh, Let's see here. JH, I'm going to give you the last word, and then I think I'm going to wrap this one up. JH, what's up? Uh, I was just going to add a little context to that uh, DOJ guidance sort of policy thing that they did here today um, on computer intrusions. And it would just anybody that's sort of interested in that topic should take a look at the case of uh, Aaron Swartz, who was an MIT student that basically was driven to suicide by the Department of Justice um, for accessing documents in good faith and to see them this was 2013 that he that he killed himself but to see the department of justice just, just sort of flippantly change policy like this is uh outrageous in my opinion yeah i'll have to read more about that case i'm not too familiar with it myself so yeah i i I would, I would have to, I would advocate for there being a presumption of bad faith. Like if you go outside your authorization and and do more, um, it seems like you should infer bad faith there, and, and you know that should be the standing policy. Uh, they should have went the complete opposite way with this this policy change. And uh, yeah, I'm really concerned about it. So yeah, Aaron Swartz was basically faced with. 35 years in prison for for downloading public documents that he was given access to and you know it seems very likely that this doj guidance is geared towards rodney jaffe and all his crew who are doing stuff that they had legal access to and it, to see them just sort of you know disregard history and, and do this <laughs> i'm really hot about it <laughs> Yeah, I was pretty fired about it earlier. I mean, I I really hope that gets picked up by some congressmen, and you know they put they put some pressure on it. And I hope Durham responds if they reach out to him because you know it's got to 
if sort of falls at Durham's feet. I mean, if Durham says, yes, I, you know, there's a potential I'm pursuing a case that is going to be relevant to this policy, then you see it for what it is. It's, it's brazen uh, political interference by the Biden Department of Justice, and it, it seems much more targeted at what Durham is doing. And Durham's got to say that. Um, you know, we can't, we can't get to a point where, you know, Durham's done, and then we're finding crimes, and we're finding evidence that stuff should have been prosecuted, but, you know, policies changed, or um, Durham didn't get the authorization or the support that he needed. Like, if there's going to be an issue like that, we need to know about it now. Um, I think Hans makes the point, and I'll never disagree with Hans on anything, but, you know, Hans makes the point, well, Durham's got, like, the skeleton staff, and, you know, Garland's not going to give him all the, the help that he needs to bring all these prosecutions. And I, I totally disagree. I mean, there's just too many political calculations involved if Durham asks for help. Like, I, I don't see it likely that Garland's going to turn anything down and risk, you know, that blowing up in the media and um, being the focus of so many uh, inquiries. Um, so if Durham asks for something and Garland shuts him down, I mean, that's a, that, that should be a major story. So it's really on Durham. And, and I don't want to hear from Durham in a couple of years that, you know, he's blown by statutes of limitations just because he didn't get all the help and support that he needed. So he seems to be a pretty quiet guy, but I'm, I'm very much looking forward to the congressional hearings where he's asked the question, you know, did anybody ever interfere with your investigation or deny you any access to any, um, leads that you were pursuing you know and we saw that all over the place with the Mueller investigation and if what bugs me is that if if that is happening and Durham remains silent it, it just reinforces this double standard that exists in the justice system and and that's one of our biggest threats as a country right now in my opinion but yeah well that, that's a really good point if you look at the way that Mueller treated his people that he got to flip I mean he's threatening he's going to drop 20 years in prison on him he's he's going you know he's kicking their doors in in the morning and scaring their families and you know tipping off cnn to put the cameras here because we're gonna we're gonna perp walk this guy and he charged roger stone for lying to congress you know and here we've got yeah. you know, testimony from sussman that clearly he lied to congress yeah where he, he he does not seem to be playing the kind of hardball that, and I, you know what, <laughs> maybe that's right. Maybe, you know, saying, I wish that we were, we played dirtier that, you know, that Durham would, would throw elbows like Mueller did. And I don't know that that's right either, but this double standard is terrible. And it's, it's just, it's, it's really a detriment to our country. And it's, you know, if one side just is so self-righteous, they think that whatever, that the ends always justify the mean we're, we're, we get serious trouble. Nothing I agree with that nothing worse than you know losing while standing on principle you know <laughs> yeah I, I think that's good points guys um i think i'm gonna go ahead and end the chat here i, I appreciate everybody coming um i don't plan on doing one tomorrow i don't think unless something major pops up um i'll be packing and, and getting some stuff ready so um I'm gonna I'm gonna do my best on Monday to, to plan out a chat. I'll probably schedule that. Um, I'll probably plan on doing at least a quick chat every night, um, Monday through Wednesday, and you know I'll be able to be in the courtroom and, and see what's going on a little bit. And uh, I don't know I don't know if that'll help 
with, you know, figuring this out or not, but I'll do my best. And, uh, yeah, so I'm going to go ahead and end it here. Uh, thank you to all our speakers. Thank you to everybody for coming and everybody have a good night. Night, everybody. Thanks. See you guys.